page 21, I've got the scripture listed there for you. We're just going to preach on verses 8 and 9, but I do want to read it in context beginning at verse 7. Revelation 8, 7 through 9. So the first one trumpeted, and there appeared hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was thrown at the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, that is, a third of the trees was burned up, and all green grass was burned up. So the second angel trumpeted, and something like a great burning mountain was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures with souls in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Father, we thank you for your word. It is our desire to submit ourselves to it and to learn from it and to promote it. And we pray that you would encourage the hearts of each one here that Jesus Christ is indeed the sovereign who rules, continues to advance the glorious gospel that uh, you purchased from eternity past. And uh, we pray that you would uh, enable each one of us to understand this word as it is exposed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we saw that there were uh, literally torrents of blood that were raining down from the heavens in Italy and in Israel, and likewise fire ravaged the cities and the brush and the forests in both Israel and in Italy. And we saw that hail devastated the countryside, both in the northern part of the Mediterranean as well as on the south. And even though the emphasis of verse 7, or the perspective, you might say, is from the perspective of Israel, uh, the, the earth throughout the book of Revelation can usually be translated as the land. It's a reference to the land of Israel. But... Rome had made a pact with Israel to exterminate the church, and John will later picture Israel as riding on Rome, the, the harlot riding on the beast, directing that beast in its persecution. And so Rome suffered right along with Israel. And the historical evidence shows that these seven trumpets impacted both sides of the Mediterranean. Now today we're going to pick up at verse 8 which increases the, the judgments as the 12th legion of Rome swings further south into Israel. Let me read that again. So the second angel trumpeted, and something like a great burning mountain was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures with souls in the sea died, and a third of the ships was destroyed. Now I will later in the sermon look at what was symbolized by those symbols, but I want to first of all demonstrate that the symbols did indeed happen in history. Now just to remind you, I'm one of those strange interpreters that sees uh, not just what is symbolized here, as many interpreters do, but I see the symbols as usually occurring in history. They don't have to, but I think this is the usual way in which God has operated. So for example, there were ten plagues that symbolized God's judgments and his victory over the gods of Egypt, and yet they were still literal plagues. And the rock that Moses struck in the wilderness foreshadowed, or it, it was a symbol of Jesus Christ being struck by uh, God's divine justice. The water that gushed out was a symbol of the Holy Spirit, but it was still a literal rock and literal water that flowed from that rock. 
And I believe the same is true of these judgments. Now, one of the questions that might come into your mind, okay, what about the trumpets themselves? And I would say, yeah, even the trumpets are things that happened uh, in history. I pointed out last week that I think it's very significant that Cestius's invasion of the land of Israel happened right at the Feast of Trumpets. Every one of the festivals has prophetic uh, um, significance and a perfect timing. Now, I've included an outline in your, in your packet today that I hope you don't read while I'm preaching uh, because I'm not going to deal with it. I'm not going to delve into it, but I've given it to you so you can see there is an overview, and we're going to be referring to that chart as we go through the book of Revelation. Uh, but I just want to mention today that the festival of trumpets foreshadowed the casting away of Israel and the beginning of the times of uh, the Gentiles. There were literal trumpets that were being blown in the temple on these days by the priests, and what they were doing is they were calling the angelic armies of heaven to war against God's enemies. Now, here's the weird thing. The very priests who were blowing those trumpets were the enemies of God, so they were unwittingly calling God's armies to fight against Israel. And so these angels, you know, they could ignore those earthly trumpets. They're blowing their own trumpets from the heavenly temple and declaring war uh, against uh, the church's enemies. But I do want to spend a little bit more time on identifying this thing that was like a burning mountain because there are legitimate differences of opinion amongst uh, partial preterists. And part of the reason for this is we don't have a lot of information on these two months in AD 66. Uh, Josephus didn't arrive back in Israel until shortly after uh, the events of verses 1 through 9. So we have to piece things together from various sources. And I want to start by eliminating theories that are dated too late, based on the text itself, and theories that are uh, uh, dated too early, based on the, the text uh, itself. I thought uh, it was the easiest way to reduce things down to two. And by this time, I think I've so thoroughly established that these events really occurred in the first century. I'm not even going to debate with the futurist uh, interpretations. By the way, uh, many futurists do hold to my viewpoint that this was a blazing asteroid. Uh, their timing is wrong. They think it's in the future. Uh, but uh, So I'm, I'm just not going to deal with it. I'm just going to deal with some of the debates amongst the partial preterists. Two, let me, let, me, let me start off with uh, the first theory that I reject. One theory that I've seen in commentaries is that this burning mountain was a reference to Mount Vesuvius, which was literally a mountain on fire and did create death and destruction in the sea. The problem is that Mount Vesuvius did not erupt for another 12 and a half years in AD 79. A second problem is this doesn't say it was a mountain, it says it was like a mountain. And thirdly, parts of the mountain are cast into the sea, but not the mountain itself. So I really don't see that as being the fulfillment. But there are a number of commentaries who think that was. Two of the criticisms I just gave also apply to a second theory, which also dates this too late, but only by a few months, uh, because the event that they point to happens a few months later. This is, by the way, the dominant theory amongst partial preterists out there, and I respect it, but I still think it's wrong. 
This theory is that this was Vespasian's destruction of Joppa and Terakea on the Sea of Galilee. So the sea that they are referring to is not the Mediterranean. I believe it's the Mediterranean's being referred to, but they say, no, it's the Sea of Galilee. And literally, the inhabitants of the mountain were thrown into the Sea of Galilee, and the mountain was torched. Likewise, the sea was turned to blood, and there were a bunch of ships that were destroyed in a storm. And Josephus documents this rather thoroughly. But while that is a very reasonable interpretation, it's off by a few months. Secondly, it's the inhabitants that are thrown into the, in, into the sea, not so much the mountain. Now, I will mention that that event that they refer to is going to be alluded to in the book of Revelation later on. I just don't think it's being alluded to right here. We've got to follow the strict chronology that the inspired scripture lays out for us and not allow history to dictate our interpretation. Okay, that would be like the tail wagging the dog. But I definitely do respect the interpretation because at least it syncs with what the symbol symbolizes. This symbol of the mountain uh, we're going to be seeing uh, is a reference to Israel itself in the Gospels. And so this interpretation makes sense on several levels, but timing just doesn't work, so it's not acceptable to me. The third interpretation that I reject is dated too early. This one attributes all of this to the volcanism, the earthquakes, and the tsunami that destroyed 200 ships in Rome's main harbor of Ostia and was immediately followed by another 100 ships being burned. Now, that was a massive loss of ships, not one-third, but it was a massive loss of ships. And while it's another interesting judgment against Rome, it's four years too early to fit into Revelation's time frame here. My reading of Tacitus is that that Ostia um, disaster occurred in AD 62. By the time we get to verse 8 of our chapter, we're already in late September of AD 66. So that does not fit. Let me give you a fourth interpretation that does fit most of the evidence and may in fact fit all of the evidence. I'm still skeptical. Uh, this one is labeled theory number one on the back of your outlines because it's the first one that perfectly fits the timetable. Uh, there was a literal mountain on fire in AD 66 that created catastrophe. This was the eruption of the volcano called Thera on the island of Santorini just southeast of Greece. Uh, the mountain very literally did disappear into the ocean after the blast. So you could say in one sense, here's a mountain that's cast uh, into uh, the sea. In your, on the back of your outlines there, you can see a picture where the volcanic mountain used to be. That's an aerial shot of the modern Santorini. Well, you've got kind of this round uh, shape that's filled with water. That was really the base of the volcano's cone and it kind of disappeared into the ocean. Uh, the Greek historian Philostratus recorded that it not only shook the island of Crete, but it resulted in the sea receding seven stadia. That's 1.2 kilometers. This resulted in a massive tsunami which could easily have destroyed one-third of Rome's ships. The eruption itself could have killed many sea animals. So that theory fits most of the evidence, if not all of it. Now, the reason I'm looking for something else is that the text says it was something like a great burning mountain. It's almost as if John doesn't quite know what 
uh, this thing is. It's similar to a mountain, but it's different from a mountain. And secondly, it seems that this mountain is being cast into the sea from above. It's not sitting on the, on the sea and being blown up into the sea. The direction is down. So I agree with many futurists that this is an asteroid. Their timing is off, but I think their identification of the mountain is correct. And my theory uh, explains both the Santorini phenomenon as well as the fact that John was comparing it to a mountain but distinguishing it. So let's look at this theory of the asteroid. The heat generated would scientifically explain why a third of the Mediterranean had a red tide, or what modern scientists uh, refer to as an HAB, a um, harmful algal bloom. It also helps to explain the destruction of the ships. Uh, based on similar impacts studied by scientists today, this would also explain the tsunami that occurred in AD 66 and the volcanism uh, that occurred as well. An asteroid hitting the ocean floor would have generated further movement, and what we've already seen was an inc were incredibly unstable fault lines in the Mediterranean. Uh, we looked at that in chapter 6, the last few verses, so I'm not going to look into that again. This theory would also be perfectly consistent with Josephus's mention of a bright light that flashed over Jerusalem, he calls it a star, with a long streaming tail behind it. Nothing but a meteorite or an asteroid fits that description. Now, if such an asteroid hit the ocean floor in the Mediterranean right at a fault line, it would almost certainly have triggered further earthquakes and could easily have triggered the eruption of the unstable Thera on the island of Santorini. Both events happened right around the same time, and both involved the Mediterranean Sea. Now, the double impact uh, would have brought wave destruction in the northern Mediterranean as well as in the southern part of the Mediterranean. Now, whether the destruction of the ships is due to the, the volcano, to... Uh, the asteroid, as I hold, or to a combination of the both of those together, uh, we certainly have evidence for both. Now, if this was accompanied by a harmful algal bloom, that alone could account for the deaths of many breathing sea creatures like dolphins or whales as well as fish. So let's, let's kind of go through and examine the evidence for this theory. Would this asteroid have looked like a mountain? That's what verse 8 says it did would have looked like a mountain? I say yes. Several of the pictures of asteroids that are orbiting uh, within reach of Earth surprisingly look like large mountains. Obviously in composition, the rock, right? They would be uh, like a mountain in that way. But verses 8 through 9 also speaks of enormous damage to the sea, to sea creatures, and ships. What kind of destruction would an asteroid bring? Well, it depends on the size of the rock and whether it exploded before, some, sometimes they explode way up in the air before they hit the ocean, whether it explodes as it's hitting the ocean or whether it's a stable enough asteroid to pierce through and strike the bottom of the ocean uh, with full force. And NASA has computer-generated scenarios for all three of uh, those uh, situations. And believe it or not, this is not uncommon. I was reading the press conference of the B612 Foundation at the Seattle Museum of Flight and there were several NASA astronauts there who were describing uh, 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 asteroid hits uh, in our own atmosphere. Absolutely fascinating 
uh, discussion, they pointed out that between the years of 2001 and 2013, interestingly, the same dates for the weird blood rains that we were looking at last week, between those dates, there were 26 super explosions on Earth, ranging in energy from 1 to 600 kilotons. And NASA, since that event, has, you know, it's regularly documenting several more of those kinds of hits in 2014 through to the, to the present. Now, just to give you a little bit of um, a comparison so you know how much uh, of, a, of an impact these would have, the bomb that fell on Hiroshima in 1945 was 15 kiloton. So a 600 kiloton explosion or impact is absolutely astounding. It's enormous. And the meteorite that produced the 600 kiloton impact in Chelyabinsk, Russia in 2013 was actually a pretty small meteorite. It was only 65 feet in diameter. Well, that's, that's a big you know, it's a big one, but compared to some of the ones that have impacted the earth in the past, it was not that huge. It was hardly a mountain, and yet that blast blew out windows, blew in doors, knocked people over, sunburned people. And the reason they got sunburned is that the glow from this, uh, this uh, asteroid was 30 times brighter uh, than the sun. Uh, this was an incredible blast. In fact, they're using that now to measure some of the other blasts that are occurring around the Earth because most of them are out over the, uh, out over the ocean. Uh, there's videos of it. You can look. They could probably have over 100 videos, different angles of that um, meteorite coming in. Um, but many of these asteroids are not noticed by anyone other than scientists because they hit far from land out in the ocean. But scientists say that an asteroid big enough to destroy a city, if it fell on a city, occurs about once every 100 years. Now that would be a, an asteroid that's like a mountain, okay? That would be a huge asteroid. And animations of the tsunamis that result from this are absolutely fascinating. I've had an absolutely fun time, two, two days of research on this thing. It's just been a blast. But could it have destroyed a third of the ships in the Mediterranean? Well, depending on the, the size, the angle of entry, the speed, and the place of, of impact, it could have destroyed all the ships, half of the ships, a third of the ships, just a few, or none. <laughs> you know, NASA says it really depends on a lot of, uh, of variables. And I've studied their uh, descriptions of such impacts, and there is absolutely no reason why such an asteroid could not have done exactly what the text here uh, says that happened. Now, some people have way overhyped how much damage such an asteroid uh, could bring, but a study done by the Journal of Earth and Planetary Sciences found that even the massive asteroid that left a huge, huge crater off the coast of Chile did not create the apocalyptic, uh, earth-destroying waves that the movies portray, okay? And that was despite the fact that that asteroid was anywhere, they estimate, uh, about 0.9 miles in diameter to 1.2 miles in diameter. It was a huge, that was a mountain asteroid, okay? And they said, okay, that did not uh, give anywhere near the kind of damage that these, these, these movies and these ridiculous animations on YouTube uh, pretend to give. 
So there's no reason to say such an asteroid would, on the one hand, destroy planet Earth, or on the other hand, not be powerful enough to even destroy a third of the ships. That, that's the point I'm making. Now let me explain another line of study that adds additional information to add credibility to either my interpretation or to the Santorini volcano interpretation. There have been extensive, extensive studies on sedimentation and coastal tectonics in the Mediterranean region in recent years. It's just been a phenomenal growth of, of, um, of papers that have come out. And almost all of these have consistently shown that there had to be at least one tsunami uh, in AD 66, and some scientists believe that there were two tsunamis that were felt. There are two layers of ocean sediment on the mainland that came in AD 66. We've already looked at the first possible uh, cause of the first layer in chapter 6. This would be the cause of the second layer in the same year. Now, based on that sedimentation, this tsunami may well have been as severe as the tsunami that occurred in AD 365, 300 years later, for which we have uh, much more information. Now, we only have one historian that spoke of it. If he hadn't written or we didn't have what he wrote on, we wouldn't know anything about that tsunami in 365 either, other than the sedimentation and things like that. But this is comparing apples with apples because the, the impact, scientists say, of the two were pretty similar, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this historian's account of that impact in 365. The Roman historian Ammianus Marcellinus wrote, slightly after daybreak and heralded by a thick succession of fiercely shaken thunderbolts, and let me just stop there for a moment before I go on and point out he's not talking about a storm. He is talking about what people think of as sonic booms that came out of a clear blue sky. Now that too may have been generated by an asteroid. Some people think that a lot of the recent sea quakes and tsunamis that have resulted actually were generated by a, an asteroid that fell into the ocean, created both the earthquake and the tsunami that followed in Indonesia and some of the other ones that have come up. Um, and asteroid impacts have often been accompanied with this sonic boom or succession of thunderous booms. In any case, I find it interesting, he heard sonic booms in the air before he felt anything on the earth, and it's totally consistent with another asteroid hit. But he goes on, the solidity of the whole earth was made to shake and shudder, and the sea was driven away, its waves were rolled back, and it disappeared. Now, this statement is absolutely astonishing. He said that the Mediterranean Sea disappeared from sight. Well, we had something similar that happened in AD 62. Witnesses said it, it receded by 1.2 kilometers. He goes on, it disappeared so that the abyss of the depths was uncovered and many shaped varieties of sea creatures were stuck in the slime. Now, let me stop there for a moment. Keep in mind that these sea creatures, like whales and dolphins, etc., that got stranded on, on land with no, with no um, water around them, that could be one of several processes that would have led to their, uh, to their destruction. And by the way, verse 9 talks about these uh, sea creatures having souls. Okay, we're not talking about fish. We're talking about the big sea creatures that breathe. 
okay, uh, like dolphins and whales and, and things like that. And if you add to that the harmful algal bloom that would occur as a result of that asteroid heating up the water, uh, th those blooms would uh, kill a lot of the sea creatures as well. Anyway, the, uh, the ancient historian goes on to say, the great wastes of those valleys and mountains which the very creation had dismissed beneath the vast whirlpools now looked up at the sun's rays. Many ships then were stranded as if on dry land, and people wandered at will about the paltry remains of the waters to collect fish and the like in their hands. Then the roaring sea, as if insulted by its repulse, rises back in turn, and through the teeming shoals dashed itself violently on islands and extensive tracts of the mainland, and flattened innumerable buildings in towns or wherever they were found. Thus, in the raging conflict of the elements, the face of the earth was changed to reveal wondrous sights, for the mass of waters returning when least expected killed many thousands by drowning. And with the tides whipped up to a height as they rushed back, some ships, after the anger of the watery element had grown old, were seen to have sunk, and the bodies of people killed in shipwrecks lay there, faces up or down. Other huge ships, thrust out by the mad blasts, perched on the roofs of houses, as happened at Alexandria, and others were hurled nearly two miles from the shore, like the Laconian vessel near the town of Methone. Okay, well, that's the end of his, the quote from him. Now, since the tsunamis in AD 66 and 365, scientists say that they probably were about the equivalent in impact, it gives you a little bit of a feel of what happened at this year, AD 66. It was a destructive tsunami, and it's not at all hard to imagine one-third of the ships on the Mediterranean being destroyed. But were the seas turned to blood? Yes. And again, we don't have a lot of information on this uh, uh, subject from these uh, two months, but we do, what we do have indicates that the waters not only turned to blood at this juncture, but a few months later, they turned to blood again. And we'll look at that later in the book. But let me remind you of last week's evidence of blood. Cassius Dio speaks of a storm over Italy during this time and says, at Albanum, that's Italy, at Albanum, it rained so much blood that rivers of it flowed over the land. Last week, I pointed out that the same thing happened in Israel where Josephus reports, quote, the whole district was deluged with flood, and the Greek word for deluged means that the blood was poured out in a flood upon the land. With rivers of blood flowing over Italy and a deluge of blood in Israel, it is not at all inconceivable that one-third of the uh, waters became bloody. Now, we actually have references to even the springs of water during this time uh, becoming uh, bloody. Um, so it might very well be a miracle of turning water to blood just like happened in Egypt under Moses. I'm totally open to a literalistic approach. I don't think that's what was going on, but I'm open to that. For example, in AD 66, Nero was in Greece building a canal the Roman historian Cassius Dio writes, when the first workers touched the earth with their hose, blood spouted from it. 
blood spouted up from the ground. So it appears that at least some of the springs were contaminated by or turned to blood. And Cassius Dio is a very respected Roman historian. Now this may relate more to the third trumpet, which explicitly speaks of the, the springs being uh, polluted, uh, rather than to this uh, trumpet. But when we have seen the blood rain in India and Sri Lanka and many other countries contaminating the water for a long ways out from shore, a deep red color, there's no reason to think that the blood rains of AD 66 that I preached on last week could not have done the same. Now somebody asked me after the sermon last week, uh, do we need to take this literally that there was a literal turning to blood? And I say, no, absolutely. You do not have to take this as literalistic blood. God may have done it, and there seems to be some evidence that maybe he did, but you don't have to. For example, in Acts chapter 2, it speaks of the moon being turned to blood. Now, I don't know even the most literal futurists who say that moon rock is going to become liquid blood. No, they say it's going to become blood red. It's what we know as a blood moon, right? So they're not taking it literalistically like that. And <coughs> for the skeptics who question whether bodies of water can become blood red overnight, I have pictures of large, large bodies of water becoming deep red overnight. And get these countries, Lebanon, Africa, Russia, Turkey, France, China, Canada, two areas of the U USA, uh, Texas and Florida, and these are massive bodies, Serbia, Beirut, Australia, Czech Republic, Switzerland, and England. That's all in the last 15 years. Uh, I've included a small sampling of pictures in your outline. So we have seen that we do indeed have historical records or hints that every detail of the second trumpet symbol was fulfilled in AD 66. Either Santorini, or as I believe, an asteroid or a combination of the two could account for absolutely every detail. Now let's take a look now at what was symbolized. And on this there's a lot more agreement in the commentaries. What does the mountain symbolize? Well, partial preterist commentaries are generally agreed that it symbolizes Israel, a nation that had become a new Babylon. Listen to what God says about the old Babylon in Jeremiah 51, verse 25. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain. He's calling a nation a mountain. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, who destroys all the earth, says the Lord, and I will stretch out my hand against you, roll you down from the rocks, and make you a burnt mountain. So there's one of several passages that refers to a nation as a mountain, and specifically a burning mountain. And since the imagery of Babylon is consistently applied to Israel in the book of Revelation, I think it's a very apt image for the destruction of Israel. Now, interestingly, in Revelation 18, we're going to have parallels in the second half of the book. In Revelation 18, he changes the imagery, and he says that there was something like a huge millstone. It was a stone that was something like a huge millstone cast into the ocean, and that's clearly a reference to Israel. Well, that too could be a meteor, something like a millstone, okay? 
So the mountain represents Israel, the sea represents Rome, and the nation across the Mediterranean. Okay, everything's from the perspective of Israel on the map. You're standing on the map of Israel, and you're looking west. You're looking at the Mediterranean. What's the power that's over there? It's Rome, right? So what is being symbolized here is that Israel is going to be swallowed up by Rome. Israel's going to be destroyed by Rome. That is what is symbolized. And of course, there's a lot more background than just Jeremiah 51, verse 25. Uh, I won't dig into it hugely, but let me just give you one, I think, very powerful passage. In Matthew 21 and in Mark 11, a parallel, while in sight of Mount Zion in Jerusalem, Jesus cursed the fig tree. Remember that passage? Everybody agrees the fig tree is a symbol of Israel. So he curses the fig tree as a symbol that Israel is going to be cursed. Now, when the disciples are astonished that this fig tree has withered so quickly, the literal fig tree, here's what Jesus says. These are amazing words. Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And I want you to notice he's not talking about just any mountain. He's talking about this mountain. Where was he standing? He's standing right there in front of Jerusalem, which is called Mount Zion. And, and so he's, he's talking about Mount Zion or Jerusalem being cast into the sea. Kevin Davis correctly points out on this passage, and let me quote him at length. He says, Israel had been symbolically connected with God's holy mountain. Jerusalem itself was located on Mount Zion, 2 Samuel 5, 7, and the temple was built on that original fortification. So Jerusalem, Israel, and Mount Zion were equivalent terms, and every Israelite was familiar with their meaning. And he gives a whole bunch of scriptures. The disciples knew exactly what Jesus was asking them to do. They were to pray for the destruction of Jerusalem. This point is verified when the story of the fig tree and mountain are put within their context in Matthew 21 through 24, most of which hammers home the same point, the destruction of apostate Israel. The point being made here in Revelation is that the prayers of the early church would soon be answered. Jerusalem, Mount Zion, would soon be thrown into the sea. And that interpretation perfectly fits the context of the prayers of the saints in verses 1 through 4 that we've been looking at, right? Resulting, those prayers against their persecutors result in the seven trumpet judgments. So they had the faith to pray that mountain into the sea. So whether you take the burning mountain symbol as a volcano that explodes and disappears into the sea, or whether you take it as a large meteorite or asteroid that was flashing across the skies of Jerusalem into the ocean, it is a perfect symbol of what the saints were praying for. Okay, now this is where I part company with a lot of partial preterists who focus only on Israel, and it drives me nuts. If the Mediterranean Sea represents Rome, then it's quite obvious that Rome does not escape from this conflict unscathed. Keep in mind that the saints were being persecuted by both Israel and Rome and that these judgments are God's answers to those prayers. So what happens when something like a huge mountain falls into, burning mountain is cast into the sea? The sea suffers too, right? It says that the sea becomes bloodied. 
a third of the sea. A third of the sea creatures with souls die. A third of the ships are destroyed. Now, it's true. We've already seen it all literally happened, but what does that symbolize? It's symbolizing the fact that God is about to bring a massive destruction upon Rome itself, upon the Roman kingdom. The 12th legion was about to be devastated by Israel. Nero was about to die. The empire was about to die and fall apart into three sections. There was going to be civil war. There was going to be uh, millions of people throughout the Roman Empire uh, who would be dying. So Rome may have entered into this conflict with a, a great deal of confidence, but God was already foreshadowing Rome's destruction. So here's the point. Just as God punished Israel in the Old Testament using pagan Babylon as his tool, as his spanking stick, on Israel, and then he turns around and he punishes Babylon for doing so. God's going to use Rome to punish Israel, and then he's going to bring a one-third destruction on Rome. Not complete destruction, because Rome does get revived, right? But one-third destruction to Rome. And so these were perfect, perfect images of God's sovereign judgments over both kingdoms. Even the proportionality is perfect. Let me end with some applications. First application is that all of creation is a tool in the hands of King Jesus. In verses 7 through 9, we see that Jesus unleashed hail, fire, blood, asteroids, sea quakes, fish kills, tsunamis as a part of his weaponry against his enemies. And let's consider each of those and apply them to our own day. The moment the second angel sounds his trumpet, his legions of angels go into action and they guide this asteroid to the perfect spot to bring enough damage but not too much damage. If the asteroid comes in at too shallow of an angle, it's not cr going to create enough damage. If it comes in at too sharp of an angle or if it's too big of a rock, it's going to create too much damage. Later in the book, we're going to see much more damage brought to Israel. But at this juncture, God ordains that only one-third of the Mediterranean sea life and ships be destroyed. And that is so encouraging to me. Should God bring a similar judgment in our day, we can trust him, and we can trust his angels to not give us more or less than what is needed. And by the way, that means you do not need to be scared to death by these crazy asteroid, you know, earth-destroying asteroid movies that are out there, or the things that you see, the animations on YouTube. Uh, they've got the asteroid hitting the earth and it's starting to get molten and before you know it, there's not a soul alive on planet earth. That is never going to happen. I can guarantee you it will never happen because God's word says it will never happen. It's not going to be destroyed that way. So um, our, it's not as if there are not asteroids out there that couldn't destroy planet earth. In fact, scientists are freaked out by the millions of asteroids that could destroy planet earth. <laughs> that, that uh, are, are within reach of planet Earth. Um, and, and so it's not as if it couldn't happen. My point is God is in control of all of those things. You know, for me, in a sense, it's cool that these, um, these scientists realize that we are in danger. God could take us out just like that at any time with some of these asteroids that are half the size of planet Earth. It'll be boom and it's all over instantaneously. But he's got millions of armaments for his angels 
Say, okay, here's just the right size stone to bring this judgment. Here's another stone that's just the right size. And that's just one of the many munitions factories that God has uh, for his angels in this great uh, warfare for planet Earth. But here's the point. We can trust Jesus will not allow one asteroid more or less to hit planet Earth than that will perfectly advance his cause. They do not come at random. We do not need to be freaked out. The same is true of blood rains and red tides. Some people have been freaked out by the massive increase of these things since the turn of the century, since 2001. And it's true, they have been increasing. But we can rest assured these things are tools that are totally subject to Jesus and his angels. Where blood rain was almost unknown, both blood rain and blood snow have been happening all over the world. We looked at that last week. And when you realize that God is sovereign over everything, you, knew, you know these things are not by accident. It is not by accident that in the last 15 years, there has been a convergence of increasing blood rains, red tides, tsunamis, asteroids, earthquakes, fires, and strange diseases, and actually other, other things uh, as well. Now, since verse 8 speaks of one-third of the Mediterranean becoming blood red, let's consider the drastic increase of red tides caused by toxic algae, what scientists refer to as HABs, harmful algal blooms. There have been so many of them in the past few years that there has been a flurry of academic papers in the last four years trying to figure out how on earth do we deal with these increasing catastrophes and that they are catastrophes. Just read the papers by the scientists, read the government papers. Just as one example, uh, North Carolina you know, said, uh, just one year, I forget which year it was, they had $25 million loss as a result of harmful algal um, uh, blooms that had occurred there. And there's similar losses financially in other states and in other uh, countries. Um, these tides are usually called by Carinia brevis, an algae that kills large numbers of fish and other sea life, such as dolphins and manatees and can cause significant medical problems to humans from even slight exposure. So there's even tourism that goes down. People don't, do not go out there. You're going to start feeling numb on your skin. I mean, there's weird things that can start happening uh, to you. A uh, research paper by one group of scientists say that this has been, there's been an increase in the severity and the frequency of harmful algal blooms worldwide in recent years resulting in devastating impacts upon marine life and upon the economies of several countries. These things are not random. They are part of God's providence. Now, we don't need to be freaked out by them. They are tools in the hand of a just king, Jesus. But I do not look at those things in a secular way. I see these as a part of God's perfect providence. What about fires? Groundbreaking study of global fires by the U.S. Forest Service has demonstrated a massive increase of grass fires, brush fires, and forest fires worldwide since the turn of the century. Uh, all of these things are dating around the same time. Is it coincidental? Well, possibly. I'm never going to be dogmatic on anything that's based on science. It's possibly coincidental, but I doubt it. God moves the very creation as a tool of warning and judgment. Forest fires keep increasing in Brazil with the total number of forest fires in 2015 at 235,629. But 
just the first few months of 2016 has a 40% increase over the same period last year in Brazil. And this kind of increase has been worldwide. For example, the charts of damage by fires in the USA is about double what it was in, in the last 15 years, is about double what it was in the previous uh, 15 years. The amount of acreage is also about doubled. doubled. Fires have grown 75% on federally managed land. The cost of fighting fires has quadrupled. One research paper by scientists estimated that the average world mortality rate from brush and forest fires in recent years was 339,000 people. That's the average. That's a huge loss of life. Uh, now, while it's impossible to predict the future, the National Academy of Sciences has predicted that with the convergence of drier climates and beetle infestations and diseases that are killing trees, we can expect that there will be somewhere between a 400% to 600% increase of fires across the United States in the next few years. Now, I'm not saying this to be a fear monger, okay? I'm just saying creation is a tool in God's hands, and Christians need to stop being deists and seeing these things as random and meaningless. They are not random. Jesus has any number of things at his disposal that he could use to humble our nation and to humble other nations. Things like solar flares taking out the entire electric grid. Is it possible? Yeah. People are saying so in Congress. Uh, things like famine, pestilence, earthquake, mudslides, weather patterns, pollution, red tides, tsunamis, asteroids, hail, fire. We need not fear humanism. God knows how to contain it. But he is certainly committed to using his creation as a tool for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. So that's the first major application. Christ has authority where? All authority where? Heaven and on earth, which means he has all authority over asteroids. He has all authority over algal tides, uh, algal blooms. He has all authority over fires. We cannot take it and rob it from him by a secularized view of these calamities. Second, since it was not just Israel that was judged, but also Rome, it lets us know that Jesus is about the business of judging nations today. And he only brings covenant lawsuits against nations if nations are indeed responsible to his covenant law. Now, many Christians think that it's quite okay for America to be a secular government. In fact, they are promoting secularism and pluralism. And they say it's only Israel that was in covenant with God. It's only Israel that is subject to God's law. And I say, well, why did God judge Rome then? That didn't sound very fair. You know, Psalm 2 guarantees that between Christ's first coming and his second coming, all nations must bow before the Son. That's Jesus. And they must kiss him, and they must submit to his law, or he will strike those nations with his rod of iron. I can guarantee you, based upon the word of a sovereign God who does not lie, that America is going to be facing increasing judgments if it does not submit to God's laws. It is crystal clear in the scriptures that this is true. And until the church wakes up to that fact, it's not going to be serious about being salt and light. Too many churches promote secularism and pluralism and civics, and it's sad because what they are doing is they are resisting the reign of King Jesus themselves. They're to blame just as much as the humanists are. I blame the church probably far more than I blame the secularists out there. 
The third thing to note is that nature gets destroyed along with the nations who curse God. If you're concerned, you want to be a true environmentalist, you need to promote righteousness in civil government. Secular governments are unlawfully stealing billions of dollars trying to deal with environmental causes, all the while neglecting the biggest issue, submission to Christ and his law word. The more that countries rebel against God, the less the environment is going to be healthy and good. These red tides and fish kills came because of national unrighteousness. Socialistic programs and the green movement, they're not going to solve anything. In fact, they're going to exacerbate the problem because it is rebellion against God, against Christ. It's not going to help. It's going to guarantee further judgment. The solution is for nations to bow before King Jesus and submit to his word. It's that simple. And we can play a part in that. Scripture says, if my people, he's not even saying of the pagans, he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's 2 Chronicles 7:14. The church is a key in turning nations around. Don't expect the pagans to do that. He says, it's my people do this. Fourth, the destruction of ships will be picked up at length in the second half of the book. God uses economic judgments to bring nations to their needs. Indeed, the seven trumpets and the seven bowls will show God's creativity in using creation, the demonic, economics, war, famine, many, many other things to bring a nation to repentance. And it's my prayer that as things heat up in the next few years that our nation would repent rather than persisting in its rebellion. In any case, we Christians should be prepared for either scenario. If there is repentance, we need to be prepared to teach this repentant nation, here's how you live by God's law. But if we're ignorant of the law, we don't know how the nation should apply it, uh, we're not going to be a very helpful uh, person to help them through their repentance. Now, if our nation does not repent and God continues to heat up the, uh, the judgments and graciously, he doesn't do it, bam, you know, he, he gradually heat, heats those judgments up through the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. But there's going to be a lot of hurting people out there. We can be in a place to minister to these hurting people and to present the gospel to them. Perhaps the pain will draw them and make them open to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the last and the most important application. And that is that the trumpets presuppose the gospel. Okay? All of these trumpets are framed around the festival of trumpets, which is a national call to repentance. That is all that is needed for God to relent. Uh, Jeremiah says the moment a nation repents and begins to live by God's law, he will relent of the judgments that he was bringing or threatening to bring against that nation. The moment it repents and lives by God's law. It can't be just a verbal thing. It needs to be a commitment to live by God's law. So the trumpets are not only bad news, they are good news. When a nation embraces the gospel, Jesus Christ bears the curse on behalf of that nation. So let's bring the warnings of trumpets to our nation. Repent or face God's wrath. Repent and you will receive his mercy. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word and that it is a warning as well as a tool, as Gary said earlier, that brings great reward. We know there is power in your word 
uh, even power when it is preached, that you uh, have many times chosen to do things through the foolishness of preaching. But we trust your word, that it is a mighty sword. It is a, a hammer that breaks apart the rocks. It is a, a healing bomb that can heal wounds. And we do not want to just preach on our favorite portions. We want to preach the whole council. And Father, we pray that you would use the word that is preached from this pulpit and from the pulpits around this world uh, to bring great revival to the church and to bring reformation to society. Uh, Father, we pray that you would bring great joy to the angels of heaven through the repentance of nations, great joy to your own son, that you would glorify your son by restoring this nation uh, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love you, we love your kingdom, and we want so much to see your kingdom uh, lifted up and your glory and your name being honored. And so we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.